Pastor Mike preaches the law summarized from Matthew 22, 34-40 as we continue our study of Jesus as Sovereign King. Hey, thanks for being here today. I'm so thankful you're here, here at the church, and many of you uh, uh, tuning in, uh, live streaming. We're glad that uh, you've made it a point to be at church with us today. Today we carry on in our theme in Matthew, but... Um, and, and this is the third approach that leaders have had to go against Jesus. But you know, I've had a, uh, and this is the one he deals with about what is the greatest commandment, and he tells us that it's really to love, love God and to love others. I have made it a, a habit all of my life to live on a very simple assumption. And I'm going to love everyone and I'm going to assume everyone loves me until they have the courage to tell me otherwise. Some have, but most not. I simply said this, that if you get in my way, I'm going to, uh, to love you. Now, here, here's the question. I, I, I make a statement very clearly to you. I love our God. I love our God, and I love you. And I hope over the years that I've been here that I've lived a life in such a way that I have evidence enough in my life for you to observe that, I, that those statements are true, that I love God and that I love you. We will really recognize that as we observe one another. It's a deliberate act that we choose to do that. I read an account a number of years ago about a, uh, a gentleman who was in World War II. And by the way, thanks to all of you who celebrated our veterans. I actually was watching uh, something on TV on the History Channel with uh, two of my grandsons, and there was an old gentleman there. He had served in World War II. He was a broken man. And I stopped the program there and I said, uh, guys, I want you to know something. That man has not always been broken like that. There was a time in his life that he was a fighting machine. And we owe our freedom to that very man. So that's just a side note. So thanks all of you who served today and have served. Thank you very, very much. This was in World War II and this man was caught in a very difficult situation. In fact, if God had not intervened in some way, he would have died. And this was his prayer. He had no professed faith in God. He simply said this, God, I don't even know if you exist, but I make this promise to you today that if you exist and I get through this safely, I will commit my life to learn everything I can about you and to serve you. That was his promise. He made it through that very situation, precarious situation. When he got back, he said, I made a promise and I'm here, so I better keep the promise. But he didn't know how to go about learning about God. So he went to the library. And when he got to the library, he uh, asked the lady there, he said, um, I, uh, I need a book to teach me about God, learn about God. Do you have any such book as that? I mean, this guy knew nothing. And she said, yeah, we have a Bible. 
You could check the Bible out and you could, uh, that, that would tell you about God. So he checked the book out, the Bible from the library and began to read. Uh, he read that for a while and then a, a traveling salesman who was selling Bibles came by and he thought, well, man, I can own my own Bible. And so then the guy, um, said, uh, well, what kind of Bible do you want? Well, he didn't want to appear to be ignorant. So he said, I, I guess I want a big one. And so they gave him one of those family Bibles that you put on your table. And, and then he was too embarrassed to back out of it. So that's what he bought. And when he would go to work so he could read during his lunch hour, he'd pack that big Bible under his arm and go there. And he began reading the Bible. Particularly when he came to the New Testament, he ran into this person called Jesus. And his testimony was this. I fell in love with Jesus. I fell in love with him. I loved, I loved his heart. I loved the way he expressed himself. I, the, I loved the way he loved people that cared for them. I loved his gentle approach. I loved Jesus. But then he got to that part where they crucified him. And he said, I just couldn't understand. Why would anyone kill such a good man? Why, why would they do that? It, it really confused him until he got to Romans. And then he learned that Jesus died for him. Not only for him, but for all mankind. And when he got to that part, and then further, even when he got to Peter, and he learned about the suffering of Jesus, and he said, he did that for me. And it broke his heart, and he committed his life to the Lord at that very moment because he fell in love with Jesus. The thing that confuses me about life is, why is there such a division over this person of Jesus? What, what, what is there about Jesus that would uh, cause us not to love him? And not only not to love him, but even to build a strong animosity, a strong hatred. Have you seen that? It's amazing that people want to, even in our culture, in our society, there's a desire to eliminate God from the public realm, to eliminate God from our schools, to eliminate God from normal discourse in life. And I'm thinking, well, what's so bad about God? What is so bad about God? And I, and I really find nothing. And I've been following God since I was a young teenager. And in fact, the more I study about God, the more I fall in love with him. His grace, his mercy, his kindness, his understanding, his wisdom, the very fact that he's for me, even so much so that Paul says, if God be for me, who can be against me? Why is it that we would build such animosity, such hatred. It's amazing. We can talk about a lot of things, but you bring up the subject of God in some circles, and boy, there's a heated expression that comes in that. Well, what we have in the time of Jesus is not just anybody, 
that expresses this hatred for God that really wanted to kill him, but it was religious leaders. That's shocking to me. Religious leaders that would know about God. I mean, these were the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, those who knew the Word of God, who studied the Word of God and uh, professed to know God. And yet when God arrives on the scene, just as he promised from the very first part of Genesis that he was going to come, and he begins to show forth his credentials that he is God. That's what, that's what the four gospels are really all about. It is a means by which God is proclaiming that he is God and revealing that he is God by the miracles and the teaching that he gives to us. That there would be no shadow of doubt that Jesus Christ is God. And, and he proved that over and over again. But yet there were religious leaders, as we've already seen, who stood in opposition to God. Now, I read the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning, and then I want to read some additional Scriptures that help us understand at least the hatred that they had towards Jesus. Some of this will be reviewed, but I think it will help set the context for what we want to say today. Well, we read then in um, verse 34 of Matthew chapter 22, uh, the Sadducees had just been silenced by Jesus because um, of the issue of the resurrection. He answered them clearly. There was no rebuttal to that. So verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Now, this gathering together was a meeting to try to figure out what can we do now? What is it? What strategy can we have? And then it goes on. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This is, this is the word of God and is given to us for our instruction, for our understanding. Unlike any other book, teaching us. And now we learn about love. Well, first of all, let's see um, what the Jewish leaders, that their opposition to Jesus. We quoted this verse last week in, in Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 20. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Jesus was using parables as a means to teach great truths, and he was revealing that what the uh, Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees were teaching was contrary to God and his way and even the word. So here's what they said in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. It was their objective 
to do away with Jesus and his influence. We find something similar also in John's account. As we look at John chapter 5, 16 to 18, it says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now that bothered them, and he gave clarification as to what the Sabbath meant and the purpose of the Sabbath. That didn't satisfy them. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father and making him equal with God. Now, to, to their credit, I have to say that there, over the time of history, there had been other people who came upon the scene and were professing to be the Messiah, the sent one from God, the promised child, God himself. And over those years had proven that that was not the case. And so here was another one who came upon the scene, Jesus, and he was also professing to be the Messiah, the sent one from God, God himself. So claiming that is one thing, and I could see that they may be upset that to call yourself equal with God could be blasphemy if it's not true. But Jesus was showing forth in overwhelming evidence that he is God. He was showing it by his power over death, his power over sickness, his power over demonic spirits, uh, the miraculous birth that fulfilled all of the prophetic statements, and on and on it goes. It's not as if he was asking people to have a blind trust in him. He was proving, I am God. But they were unwilling to accept the evidence, even as John says, and as he's closing his book, there's a lot of other things that Jesus did, but these things were done so that you may believe that he is the Christ. And by believing, you may have eternal life. So Jesus Christ, in all that he was doing, as given account by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all of those accounts were to prove without question that he is God, and ultimately, finally, coming forth from the dead in the resurrection. So we see that uh, they were opposed to him, but they weren't looking carefully at the evidence. Later on in John, we read of another account in John chapter 8, and there's several incidents there in which he says that. And they said to him, teacher, teacher, this is the woman that was caught in adultery. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. There was a lot of speculation as to what he may have been writing at that time. He may have been writing the list of the sins of those people that were looking at him. I don't know. That's speculation. It goes on in verse 37 of the same chapter 8. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. This is Jesus speaking. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Now he's making a direct statement to them that you, you make no provision for the word of God in your life. And furthermore, he says in verse 59 of chapter 8 as well, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So it was in the very temple of God that he was making these statements. 
In John chapter 10, we find another account, verses uh, 31 to 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Again, the same accusation, blasphemy. Then in the context of what we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 21 and 22, we see two other accounts in which they are in opposition to God. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because he, they considered him to be a prophet. And then in 21 verses 14 to 16, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were uh, shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, you have, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing, nursing babes, babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. So we see then that there is clearly a, a hatred that has uh, formed by these Jewish leaders. Now, the amazing thing is, is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and the Herodians normally were parties who were in opposition to each other. But we find them coming together here in the passage that we read, coming together because they've got to get rid of this one called Jesus. Now, my question is, why were the leaders opposed to Jesus. We see that they were, and we could see that the grounds of this was that he was teaching the wrong word and that he was uh, claiming to be equal with God, claiming to be God. And we see that that's what was really the outward pers- uh, reasons. But there was three reasons. I love what Ligonier Ministries, they gave, I really was studying this week, and I said, why were asked that question? And why were they so opposed to Jesus? And uh, they give three uh, reasons why they felt that he was opposed to Jesus. Well, one was that Jesus was exposing them for their false teaching. Now, the false teaching was not that they were not using the Old Testament. They were. But they were misinterpreting that, and they were actually suggesting and demanding that you actually become a follower of God by the ability to keep all of the word of God, to keep it, to keep the law perfectly. Now, you can imagine in Jesus's first major teaching how they were offended when he said, uh, there in the fifth chapter, first part of that major discourse that he was giving, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't have any part of the kingdom of God. That's a pretty direct statement, isn't it? In other words, what the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching you, and that is a salvation by works, will not make you a child of God. In fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 23 of Matthew, we find the eight woes 
that Jesus gives against the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And one thing he says in regards to them, state this very clearly and uh, in his, the teaching, he says, you know, you go out and you make disciples of your teaching there. And when you do that, you make them twice the sons of hell. Now, I think that's a pretty strong statement to say that what you're teaching, not the word itself, but the methodology in how one can be right with God. And it's not by keeping the law. It is by, for the purpose of the law is to reveal, let's understand this, the purpose of the law was to demonstrate the heart of God. The law is a code that defines the character of God. And so when the code is given to you, and this is what the Israelites said, even when it was given to them by Moses, all that you've said we will do. They didn't. They failed in just a few days after that. The law was given to reveal twofold, the heart of God, the nature of God, the very pureness of God, and at the same time to reveal the impurity of man, to drive them to a need of a Savior, not as a means to gaining salvation, impossible to do that. So they were uh, opposed to Jesus because they were uh, being exposed in terms of the teaching of what was going on, and it was not true. Secondly, it says here, they were jealous about the popularity of Jesus. He every, Everywhere he went, and rightly so. Whereas the Pharisees were teaching uh, this demanding, uh, uh, you're not measuring up and you're not doing enough and you need to do more, Jesus was saying, come unto me all who are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Uh, Jesus was uh, healing their sick. He was raising their dead. He was showing compassion and understanding. Uh, he uh, cast out the demons uh, of uh, of this man and on and on it goes. I mean, there was a crowd. He was feeding them. He was caring for them. He was gaining popularity. Now, understand this. It was not Jesus' desire to simply gain popularity. It was Jesus' desire by doing all that he did, as I've already said, to show that he is God. But God was attractive. Honestly, when you look at it, and when I look at scriptures, Unless I have an agenda of my own, Jesus and God are very attractive. I mean, look at, look at the Garden of Eden. He made the Garden of Eden so that um, Adam and Eve could have everything that they would ever desire. I mean, what's wrong with a God like that? And we find that he's going to do that yet again. He's prepared a place for us. Well, the reason is because we have a different understanding and we want people to like us, and we're jealous if Jesus gets the first billing. And Paul tells us that really in life, Jesus should have the preeminence in everything. He should, undis- he should have undisputed first place in our lives. Well, another reason is not only that he was exposing their false teaching, and not only because they were jealous of his popularity, <clears throat> but they were also intimidated by the power of Jesus. They couldn't do those things. But I think it was more than that. I think it was not only they couldn't do those things, but at this time, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had a pretty good working relationship uh, 
with the Roman government. Now, they were still oppressed, but uh, they really didn't want anything done to disturb that relationship. And now if Jesus is, does not have, as the people thought, they thought they were going to come and overthrow the Roman government and establish the beauty of the, the Davidic throne, the great time under the time of King David. They thought that. And uh, so what if this one, Jesus, proclaims all of that stuff, is not able to do what he said he was going to do or what they thought he was going to do, and then he just gets in trouble. We're going to lose all of our influence. And no, we're afraid of this power. It could be misused. So those three things, their teaching was being exposed, their uh, popularity was being lost, and uh, they, were the, they were the ones. Till Jesus came upon the scene, they were the esteemed ones, and people said, I want to be just like a Pharisee if I can. And you imagine then what Jesus said, unless you exceed that, you can't be part of the kingdom of God. These three things. So Jesus doesn't do anything to mitigate their animosity. In fact, he seems to even provoke it, exposing them more. Now, just look at the context of where we have been in these these few chapters here. We find in chapter 1, after the triumphal, I mean in chapter 21, after the triumphal entry of entering into Jesus' time there, he goes into the temple and cleans out the temple that was run by the, the Sadducees, kicks out the money changers, and, and says, this, you're making this a den of iniquity, and it should be a house of prayer. Now, I don't think that won a lot of favorable points from the Sadducees to Jesus. And then he goes on to do more. He tells the parable of the two sons in verse 28 of chapter 1. And he talks about the one son that says that I won't go and will go and so forth. And uh, and then when all of that is done, they say that they realized, uh, look at what Jesus says in verse 31 of chapter 21. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first, and that is the one who then recanted and went back and did what the father wanted him to do. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the heaven of God before you. Now, I would say that that didn't do a lot to encourage these people and to say, you know, this is a standard of God, and now you're... So, But he doesn't stop there. Then he tells, in the next section of Scripture here, this is, this is all after the triumphal entry. This is just days before his crucifixion. This is the encounter that he's having with the religious leaders. And then he tells them another parable. He tells a parable of a landowner and how this landowner uh, had, uh, they, they came and they persecuted the, the, the servants. They even went on to uh, kill the son, uh, verse 37, but afterwards he sent his son to them saying, uh, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so we see they took him. And so what happens is Jesus then takes this and uh, says, you know, here, here's the problem. There is a, uh, as spoken by Isaiah the prophet, there is a chief cornerstone of, of which all of life rests upon this, speaking of God himself, and you have rejected 
that chief cornerstone, Jesus himself proclaiming to be that chief cornerstone. Now look at verse 45. And when the chief priests and scribes heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So here we have it. The temple is cleansed. A couple of parables, another parable is then told after this, and it's the feast, the marriage feast. And he's talking about those uh, people that some will be prepared and some won't. And they realize that uh, it's the unlikely ones. Go out on the highways and byways and compel them to come in. It's not you who think you deserve to be there. You're not even ready for this. And he revealed to that to them. And then, of course, we're not going to cover that anywhere today. But in the next chapter, Jesus then pronounces to them in chapter 23, eight woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, beginning at verse 13. And he begins to outline the hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite, and he says that eight times. Eight times he calls them hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite is one who pretends to be something they're not. And he's telling them, you're putting on this show, but I see through that. So I think then that Jesus was probably not doing anything to win their favor. He was not falling in line like the rest, but he was exposing them through his teaching and through his actions, that they were not true examples of righteousness. So what did the Jewish leaders then decide to do? We know they wanted to stone him. We know they wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. So they decided that they would uh, discredit Jesus. That would be the thing that they'll do. So, So if they could discredit Jesus in such a way... He, he would lose favor with the people, and he would be a done issue. We wouldn't have to deal with Jesus anymore. And so they devised these methodologies of trying to discredit him. The first one was, we've already heard the message on this. Again, I'm trying to give you a context of all that was going on at this time. Or from, it was from the, from the Pharisees. And they said, uh, you know, what we'll do is we'll take this coin, and on this coin is an image of Caesar, and we're going to uh, try to pit Jesus against the Roman government, and the Roman government will think, oh, we've got an insurrectionist here, and let's go get rid of him. And so they raise up the coin, and Jesus then responds. He said, well, there's a place for both. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and render unto God the things that are God. The people were amazed at his teaching. Isn't that interesting? Instead of turning the people against Jesus... The response is they were amazed at his teaching. He was saying that really that governments are a divine institution and they have a place where they should be. So they failed on that. The people didn't turn against him. So then we come up with another idea, and that's what we talked about last week, and that's the Sadducees. And the Sadducees tried to make it look as if Jesus' theology was foolish, Certainly, certainly, as they bring this bizarre, absurd illustration of the, of the woman who was married to the seven brothers there as each brother died and who would she be in heaven? 
Because the, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection, but what they were trying to do was to show that their theology was superior to Jesus's, and therefore they would not follow Jesus, but they would follow, in fact, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But Jesus then takes them to the very word that they loved, which was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, only those spoken and given by Moses. And they said, this is what we believe. And so Jesus takes them right back there and shows the resurrection is right here in the very core of what you believe in terms of even the deliverance that was going to be to the Israelites came at this very moment when he said, I am that I am. I'm the father of Abraham, the father, so forth. Failed again. In fact, what we see here is that the people were astonished at his teaching. Things weren't going well with this plan to discredit Jesus. So they try one other means, and that is they send this lawyer. The lawyer, and what are, what are they trying to, what are these trying to do in this case? I believe that what they're trying to do in the passage we just read here, by asking what is the greatest commandment, I think they were trying to pit him against the law and Moses. And Moses and the law were held in high regards by the Jewish people. And if we can get him to say something that is contrary to Moses, then we've got it made. And we will have finally discredited Jesus. Popularity would have diminished and he would have been silenced. So let's take a closer look. Now, we're at the passage for today. You see the context of all that was going on? You see the spirit of all this? This was a, a tremendous interactive plot that was going on at this time, in real time, only days before the crucifixion of Christ. And he was dealing with these leaders who were trying to silence him. So here we have then the words that are given to us here in this 22nd chapter in verse 35. We've already talked about in verse 34, they come together again. You, you know, you may have thought then that he had silenced the uh, Sadducees. You think maybe when the Pharisees were meeting together again, and this lawyer would only is separated because he would be one who would be recognized, he's probably a scribe, but would probably recognize as one who was very good at what he did. So it was a chosen one to go and represent. Mark actually puts him in different light, not as if he was as hostile as the first two discrediting efforts were. But still we find that this word is, as they were meeting together, this lawyer that was there trying to figure out what to do. It says here in verse 35 that he came there testing him. So even though Jesus gives a gentle answer to this lawyer, even suggests to him at the end of the account that Mark gives on this, that you're very close to the kingdom of heaven. You're very close. Didn't say he was there, but he was very close. So he, he, he honors his disposition, but still the motive was the same. It was testing him. This word testing here is the same one, word that we find in Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew chapter 4 is the tempting of Jesus by Satan. And what was the purpose of Satan in that temptation? It was try to discredit Jesus, to try to get him to bow down so that he would not fulfill the purpose of his coming there, which was to pay for our sins. This is the same word that is used there, this testing. So it is to uh, try to cause them to fall. And to... So here's the question. 
what is the greatest commandment? Now, that was, uh, that was actually a discussion that was going on amongst the Pharisees and the scribes that had been for a long time. There are, uh, in the law that is given, that is broken out into 613 laws. 248 were considered to be positive, and 365 were considered to be negative. And, and in fact, we see even in Matthew 23, which Jesus talks about the, the hypocrisy that they miss the weightier things. In other words, in the debate that was going on with the Pharisees, they said, well, this, is, this law is really important, and this one is not as important. And uh, Jesus says to them, even in the next chapter, he said, you miss the real thing. You miss justice. You miss, you miss righteousness. You miss those things, but you're, you're on this lesser law, as it were. So they were debating this. It, was a, it came out of the context of reality that they would discuss. What is the greatest commandment? Some laws carry more weight than others, according to the Jewish leaders. Now, the lawyer was hoping that Jesus would say something against the law given by Moses and therefore become grounds to discredit Jesus before the people. In the Jewish world, there was no person held in higher esteem than Moses. Moses was the one that met face-to-face with God. Moses was the one who personally received the law of God from God Moses was the one that led them out of captivity. Moses was the one that led them to the edge of the promised land that was given. No one person. I know David is up there and Abraham is up there. But really, when we look at verse uh, chapter 23, it says, uh, verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples and saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. So there they were. This is, this, this is the highest pinnacle. You're sitting in the chair of Moses. So now if they could get him to discredit that in some way by giving another law, then the people would uh, turn against him in that case. Well, what does Jesus do? Well, first of all, we need to understand that Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, he said, I didn't come to condemn the law. I came that the law might be fulfilled through me. That's what Romans 3 talks about when we read about what the law was unable to do, Christ did. In other words, it is a faith in Jesus Christ who paid the price for our sins, who fulfilled the law in every expression. That's the means of our salvation. The law itself is not a means, as I said even earlier. But Jesus said, he already said that. It, it, it's amazing. So he knew that there was within the people that spirit of, uh, of not, uh, of thinking that he was against the law. But he said, I, I didn't come to destroy the law. I want the law to be fulfilled. Now, that's a nonsensical statement to believe that he's, if he says he's God and the law is the character of God, how can he defeat his own character. It's a, it's a nonsensical argument. But he responds to them because they believed and even in uh, believed that he was against that. Now, what he does teach in that first major discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, now you have said, but the Word says, 
he actually reinforced the word and he exposed the hypocrisy of their interpretation of that and its application. That's what he did in this process. Okay, so here's the question. And now what does Jesus answer in this process? Instead of speaking against the given law of Moses, Jesus goes to the very central teaching of the, of Moses to state something that every Jew would have a complete knowledge of. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.5, written by Moses and required every day for the Jew to re- recite it twice a day. The Shema. And what is that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it goes on, verses uh, uh, 4 to, to 9. All of that's stated there. In fact, it is, uh, uh, it's interesting that some of the Jewish people, because it talks about in verse 9 of that Deuteronomy passage about putting uh, the law upon the, the doorpost there, that they would actually say mazusa, um, which was a, a little cylinder thing so long and so big around. Inside of that then was these words that were written there. And when the Jew would enter his house and leave his house, he would always. If you ever watched a Fiddler on the Roof, you'll notice one of those things there that when they go in and out of the house, they, they touch. They touch that because they are honoring that. The, some, uh, some of the more Orthodox Jew, even today, and certainly in the time, because he talks about binding them on your hand and binding them on your head, they'd make uh, phylacteries, which was a little leather box that they would strap to the top of their heads. If, perhaps you've seen some of that. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've seen that. Uh, and there'll be a, a box. And in that box, that leather box, was certainly these words. Maybe others as well, but certainly these words. So it's interesting then, much like he did with the Sadducees, he does now with this lawyer. And he said, no, instead of pitting me against Moses, I'm going to go to the very heart of your teaching, and I'm going to quote to you what is the most significant. Each Jewish home was required to teach these things. It says that when you are in your house, and when you're in a walk, in the way, and when you are de- when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind this as a sign on your hand. They shall be on a frontals on your foreheads. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Jesus again silences those who would seek to discredit him. It's interesting to note that Mark then says, in giving this account that we have, it says, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. <laughs> I guess not, huh? Each one that he had proven, and they were astonished. And then he says that the great commandment is simply this, that you shall, as he quotes you, you shall love the Lord your God deliberately, choosing by will to have him the most significant part of your life in everything, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second commandment, he said, was likened to it, you shall love your neighbor. There he was quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. So there it is. Jesus, again, adequately 
deals with that. But what we really need to do then is ask ourselves the question, what is Jesus teaching us? Because in each one of these accounts, he's not only responding to the statements that were made that were trying to discredit him, but he's also teaching. He was teaching with the with the uh, question about um, Caesar, and Jesus teaches us something valuable that there is a that the government serves a place for God, and that but God is also significant and supreme in that. About the resurrection, he taught that, no, I want you to be assured that there is such a thing as a resurrection. We can look forward to that. It's a blessing. So he teaches us something today. So what is he teaching us today about these two great commandments? Very simply, God expects us to love this way. He expects us to love this way. So we may sit here and say, and you may go out there and share this with others and say, well, God expects you to love this way. And you say then, right on, I'm going to start doing that. Now, I have bad news for you. You can't. You do not, in and of yourself, have the ability to love that way. You would be as guilty as the Jewish people were when the law was given to them. And they say, oh, this is what you expect. We'll do that. In and of our own power, we can do that. <clears throat> no, wrong. And in fact, when we look to First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 19, we find a very clear statement. Here it is. We love because he first loved us. Your ability to love is not you taking the initiative. It is a, the initiative is from God's perspective. And he find, we find even in Romans chapter five, that God, even by the presence of the spirit of God within theirs, fills your heart with love. When the spirit of God as a believer comes into your life, into your life comes the love capacity of God. Now, enabled by God, I can love God's way. I can love God, and I can love others. And in fact, John tells us in the third chapter there in 1 John that if we don't show love for our brothers, it's an indication we don't have the love of God within us. In other words, all of the commandments are summarized, as Jesus says here, in loving God, because if I love God, I will, as a result of that, love my fellow man. You can't say, I love God and hate your brother. That's an oxymoron. Now, you can do it, but it's a misrepresentation of the truth of the love that God has within you. You're rebelling against God at that moment. All of us have the capacity to love God as believers, as believers. That's the prerequisite. I have to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, Spirit of God within me. I have the capacity to love God's way. It's not a matter of can I love God's way, God and my fellow man, but will I? Will I love my fellow man? My last point here is this. 
What does that love look like? I've looked at this thing about love for a long time. You know, everybody at some point in their life really felt like they were deeply in love. And they thought, oh, this is so wonderful. Somebody has said, uh, it may not be that love makes the world go around, but it sure makes a trip enjoyable. Maybe there's truth in that or not. But when you first fall in love, and then that one that you were in love with says, I'm done. You think, oh, man, what is love then? I, I've done a lot of searching on that. Now, if you've never been hurt by love, then just ignore what I'm saying. <clears throat> Knowing that I have your full attention now, <clears throat> here's what I believe love is. It, it, it's, a, it's a paragraph that I'm going to read, but, I, but I'm going to read it slowly. Love is the commitment of the will. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It is a deliberate choice to love. And you love fully with all. It's used three times. With all, with all, with all. Everything within me. It's a deliberate commitment of the will to cherish and uphold another person. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a deliberate act on God's part to manifest his love. So let me go. It is a commitment of the will to cherish and uphold another person as you deliberately choose to act for the best interest of another, doing everything we can to advance the cause of God in their lives. That's love. That's love. This love actually looks like Jesus. He so loved the world that he gave for our benefit his own life that we might live. The church of Ephesus had to learn that they could do a lot of things. But Jesus says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. I love God. And because I love God, I love you. And I pray that we'll love in such a way that we give an enough evidence by those who observe that both of those statements are true. Father God, we thank you for the time we've had to be in your word, whether it's been in our home or here at the church building, but we've been able to draw together to sit at your feet, Lord, to learn from you. I'm glad you answered the questions trying to challenge your credibility And you answered them in such a way that they all could benefit from that answer. We can as well, and we want to. I pray that uh, you would uh, draw us into a deeper and deeper love with you. And we know that we can do that because you said, "If if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We can go to your word. We can find the blueprint of love right there. We can see it in the life of Jesus. Oh, God, may we be lovers of you. (laughs) Draw us to that even now. If we've lost that first love, draw us back to that. Let us remember the joy of that. Confess to you that we've lost that and come back. And then allow that to demonstrate itself towards others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.